Hello and welcome back to MusiCast. This is our second episode, so if you haven't listened to the first one, please make sure you do. If you're liking what you're hearing so far, feel free to follow, like, and share. While I don't make money off of this, I do love to see the numbers on the analytics page. Anyways, in this episode, we will be discussing beat. What is it? How is it used? And what role does it play in music? This week, I talked to two professors here at Ohio University, Dr. Will Talley, Director of Bands, and Professor Jessica Fletcher from OU's Music Therapy Department. I hope you enjoy my conversation with both of them as we get underway. Our first guest today is Professor Jessica Fletcher. I'll let her introduce herself. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so my name is Jessica Fletcher, um, and I uh, am a music therapist. I worked for Central Ohio Music Therapy, which is a private practice for about 10 years. Um, so I have 10 years of clinical experience. Um, a lot of that was within mostly mental health, um, primarily between or primarily including uh, working in corrections, substance abuse, um, some medical and hospice, um, but a lot of the work really centered around um, kind of being trauma-informed and kind of helping people, especially in Appalachia in this region, uh, move through trauma through music. Um, so that was a way that I am just very thankful for having that opportunity to learn so much and have so many individuals share their lives with me um, and a lot of their pain. Um, I got my undergraduate degree at Baldwin Wallace University and my master's here at Ohio University. So another kind of fun circular fact is I'm very um, proud and excited to be an alumni of the Ohio University Master's in Music Therapy program and also get to teach here at OU now. So I've kind of made that jump a couple years ago from full-time clinician to full-time uh, professor and teacher. And it's awesome to be able to use all those experiences to help um, the next generation of music therapists. Awesome. That sounds super cool. So we're just going to jump right into questions. And the first one that I have is briefly describe music therapy. Yes. Um, so music therapy, um, the way that I like my definition of music therapy is using music to help people achieve meaningful goals. Um, that's a very general um, definition um, but a lot of my experience was describing this to kiddos, adolescents, or individuals with trauma. So I found that that was a nice general way of describing it to allow them also the freedom of choosing what they wanted to work on in music therapy. So it's really we're using music as the therapeutic vessel um, to move through the process of kind of working towards getting to um, a healthier spot. But what the individuals want to work on in their body um, and all of that is often up to them. We're often looking at uh, um, cognitive goals, emotional goals, social goals, just because music can really connect us in so many ways. And all of our brain is engaged um, with music. So it's a really kind of effective way if talk therapy maybe isn't um, fully meeting the needs of the individual or maybe they need um, multiple means of support music can be a great way to really connect with emotions and uh, get regulated and achieve those goals in a way that's not talking or writing 
Cool. So kind of bouncing off that, and this might be, I don't know, kind of a heavier question, but how do you how do you use music to help uh, heal people, and what does that do for them? I love this question. Um, so I love first that you use the word heal because that's an intentional word in and of itself because um, we really can't fix people with music. We can't fix a brain, and that in and of itself indicates that it's broken, which people aren't broken. They're just, you know, needing support. Um, so I really like to think about how music kind of provides space to move through tough things. Um, so a lot of times an example that comes to mind that I find pretty powerful is a lot of the women or um, adolescents that I would be working with in recovery and addiction um, would often just be trying to find ways to connect back to their bodies um, because they had been so shot out of that with the effect of what substances do to the brain and then what traumatic experiences do to the brain. Um, so I like to think of it as it's not fixing, it's not necessary healing, it's almost reconnecting back to the body um, through things like rhythm and processing and sometimes kind of the music might give a deeper way to process it in the brain uh, multiple ways if you're singing playing an instrument you're engaging in multiple ways of kind of moving through what the music or the song might mean um, and kind of almost that metaphor of that experience might be able to meet a need of going through an emotional process of some sort so it can get pretty um, deep but it's also interesting that it's also a way to almost process things with a safe distance so sometimes you might be processing this idea of a deep loss but it's a little bit easier to talk about the artist and what they might be feeling than saying, oh, maybe this is actually about me. So it's kind of like a safe container. We're providing space in the music so they can move through things. Interesting. So then our, our next question is, uh, do you notice that different age groups or even like race, ethnic or um, just any different groups respond to music differently? Um, and if so, how do you use that to your advantage as a music therapist? I love that question also because it really highlights how much culture and different types of music are really important in a music therapist's work. Because just as you said, you know, we're, there's not specific music that heals, you know, I can't play a song that's going to cure your cold um, or anything like that, but I can definitely, um, engage with somebody to say what kind of music is meaningful to you what music brings you joy what music might be associated with this painful experience or what music is important in your home um so a lot of times we are really needing to be um competent um individuals in many different types of music and culture because you never know who you're going to um, interact with. So a lot of our music therapy education, while we have music theory and um, orchestra and your primary instrument, um, a lot of the curriculum is very heavy in um, drumming, uh, multicultural aspects of music, um, expanding outward. We here at OU have been partnering uh, some with CMDI and digital instruments because a lot of kids and adolescents now have um, technology and music in their pockets, um, on their phones, um, being able to make music in GarageBand, Soundtrap, all these different places, and they might not necessarily be able to afford an instrument. Um, so we really work hard to keep up with technology, um, to be really meeting 
kind of the common people and individuals where they are with music, which I find very exciting because I get exposed to all sorts of different music I never would have known about if I had not had these kind of varied experiences. So, you know, I've used everything from Tupac to Jelly Roll to Creedence Clearwater Revival. Like, we really have to live within music and culture in that intersection to serve different ages. Cool. I definitely wish you could use a song to, to cure colds right that now. Would be great. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Especially in the winter. Right. So kind of going off of um, what you said, you use a lot of drumming. Uh, this episode is about beats and rhythms. So I'm going to use that as a, as a segue. <laughs> so if you had to write a definition of rhythm, what would it be? Uh, um, so I, I don't know. I came up with three words, which were the ones that came to me. Um, which if I were defining rhythm, I think because of that culture aspect, because I couldn't not have that in my brain, um, I think I define rhythm as an intentional organized pulse. Because I started trying to think, oh, well, is it a certain meter? Well, we have different meters in different cultures. And then if I kind of thought of what ways has rhythm been healing, therapeutic, supportive, whether that's hip-hop beats, drumming, um, just kind of having a metered beat in a song, we're using music kind of as a grounding element um, and then kind of as a way to organize time and space. So that's kind of where I arrived at an intentional organized pulse. Nice. I like that definition a lot. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that there's different like meters and rhythms across like cultures. Would you be able to just expand on that and kind of elaborate more how the the cultures um, impacted how the uh, beats and rhythms were formed and uh, structured. Yeah, I can try because different cultures will definitely have different meanings also of beaten rhythm, which I it's interesting that you asked that question because that's almost why I answered the rhythm question in the way that I did is, you know, there are cultures where there are more asymmetric beats um, or more, you know, 4-4 four, four time might feel a little bit regulatory in some cultures. Um, so that was actually a thing that I found very complicated to almost de-unlearn um, being a music therapist because sometimes... Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of that some churches really like Amazing Grace in 4-4 and some like it in 3-4. Um, at this point, I don't remember what was the original correct meter of Amazing Grace. I have very big quotational finger air things going right now. Um, because in the music therapy world, does it really matter what's really important is the way that that client or that individual is experiencing it. So if they like it in that meter, we're going to follow that. Um, what I find interesting about some of the path of beats and rhythm, like you were asking about, um, kind of in America, is I guess I kind of thought about, you know, Western-wise, we have certain beats that came maybe from more European cultures within um, some of our uh, curriculums and everything, and that has meaning and is needed and created a lot of connection and nostalgia. I mean, there's songs that many people will be connected to, and a lot of that has to do with the rhythm or the driving beat behind it. Um, similarly, um, we also had connections of beat and rhythm, maybe in some marginalized cultures as well, coming over. And a lot of times we saw rhythm and, and beat and all of that 
maybe manifest more as a need of survival, of connection, of culture, um, in a time where maybe it wasn't as easy to express that or connect. Um, and then kind of just finding the ways that beat and rhythm, given that we have so much different musical information and cultures and backgrounds, that, that it kind of could almost be a grounding um, force for bringing things together. I believe one of our grad students right now is potentially working on a thesis talking about cultural fusion that kind of talks about that of, you know, can we bring together different aspects of culture and rhythm and music so it's really coming together and connecting people across cultures um, and kind of how can we use rhythm, beat, melody and those things to connect people. All right, and then we're talking a lot about rhythm and beat in the same kind of like sentences, I guess, but using them differently. So how would you how would you separate uh, rhythm from beat? Awesome. This was one that I struggled with when I was looking over the questions a little bit because I had to kind of think, oh, do I use those in the same way or are they different? Um, so I love the intentionality of your questions. Um, I think the first thing, again, that came to mind was rhythm was kind of the things or I'm a very visual person, almost the Legos and beat is kind of the story or the layers that are together. So rhythm almost kind of are these pieces that can come together to create a beat which maybe has more meaning or more depth in what it can feel besides just that rhythm so we might be talking more about how do the beats and sounds interact together um what does that do with perception and all that kind of stuff awesome yeah i definitely um sometimes use rhythm and beat interchangeably um but even then like just like in a music theory class uh, hearing it described differently, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess those are two completely different things that I've just been meshing together. <laughs> so then we have one final question. Um, so I've been reading, this is Your Brain on Music uh, by Daniel Levitin. Um, and he says something interesting that is uh, rhythm gives melody drive and structure. Um, and I was wondering if you'd be able to kind of expand on that statement um, and talk about the different rhythms and the different feels that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this reminded me almost of like, the purpose of rhythm in music therapy or what I feel it is, is if you're thinking about like a, your, the, the body, we have rhythm within our body. Um, bodies and the earth like to be very rhythmic. We've got a heartbeat. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go in cycles and have kind of a rhythm to it. Um, so it's something that's one innately human, which I think is an interesting thing to bring back and think about. Um, but also, especially thinking of that concept of the heartbeat, um, that's where I really think that drive and structure can come from um, is kind of this idea of rhythm and kind of understanding where we are in time and space um, really can come from rhythm and can give us drive. Um, so I've noticed a lot of times sometimes rhythm can be very regulating um, for individuals. Um, there's a lot. Uh, I feel like a question I've gotten a lot over the years is especially adolescents in distress being like, is there something wrong with me because I find heavy metal and hip hop relaxing? And I go, well, tell me what it is about it that is relaxing. And often they talk about a strong driving beat being something that kind of helps them feel regulated. Um, so sometimes, you know, some people might find that a kind of a 4-4 beat or something that really feels regulated and structure can kind of help them feel grounded and secure in their body in life um sometimes a swaying feeling might be more 
regulating for someone. I know I tend to gravitate towards six, eight, and three, four times because I find those relaxing. Um, but sometimes the like asymmetric type beats or beats that have or rhythms or beats um, that are maybe in seven, eight or something like that, that kind of changing up in structure might be regulating. Um, so I think the idea that almost rhythm in music or in general can kind of help conceptualize time. Um, that's something has, that has helped me kind of understand how can beat be motivating or regulating. Um, I'm thinking once of a neat music therapy experience once where there, I was working with someone that um, maybe was not super grounded in reality at the time, but sang a couple of lyrics that thank goodness I was able to recognize and I sort of started playing the song um, to kind of the beat and tempo that they were singing it and it took quite a while but eventually um, they started singing along everyone else was able to um, engage as well and while that was sort of like we, it was a way that we could meet within music and rhythm based on where that person was, but we could all kind of connect for a moment within that. Um, and that kind of popped into my head as an idea of how rhythm and music can be regulating in that way. Awesome. That's super cool. I, I know that um, me personally, I like syncopated beats. Um, I think it's just fun to like, I don't know, feel the, I guess feel the absence of a, of a downbeat, um, but then have it all kind of like, come back together after like it I don't know I just think it's cool yeah I don't know why that made me think of the other my self-care thing that I do is I do Irish dance um, and a lot of why I like to do that is because of the hard shoot and the rhythms um, and I syncopated ones are my favorite as well because it helps me kind of understand where those emphasis are and I don't know why it's easier to not on the downbeat I don't know syncopation is cool Cool. That was all the questions I had uh, written. Do you have any kind of like final um, thoughts or closing remarks? It's okay if not. I guess encouraging uh, people to kind of maybe think about what about rhythm is meaningful to you and what about rhythm and maybe music can be soothing, helpful, healing. Um, you know, the breathing is another thing I think of. Sometimes even just kind of thinking about the rhythm of a song and taking deep breaths can be a nice way to even just kind of regulate um, within a, a few moments or minutes, especially um, as I know that the semester ramps up and gets stressful. So maybe take a few moments to think about how rhythm and music could be helpful to you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time to meet with me today. I really enjoyed um, getting the opportunity to interview you. Um, and yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. Thank you again to Professor Fletcher. Lots of interesting things to unpack and think about. One thing that stuck out to me was the use of rhythm as a regulatory aid. It makes so much sense to me now that I think about it. Everything has rhythm. We have sleep cycles, rhythms. The seasons have regular rhythms. The moon comes and goes predictably. And even TV shows, books, and stories often follow a rhythm like the hero's journey or something similar. For more information on the hero's journey, refer to your local English teacher. Feeling a strong rhythm can help you stay grounded and calm you down. She talked about how sometimes patients feel wrong for being soothed by hip-hop or heavy metal, but those genres especially have strong, deliberate rhythms that can ground and direct you. 
Conversely, she and I both agreed that we personally like swaying or syncopated rhythms. Could this stem from being rocked as a baby? Or does it have to do with swaying rhythms being able to dance to or sway to? I don't have the authority to say, but it certainly raises an interesting question. Our next guest will be Dr. Tally. Dr. Tally, why don't you introduce yourself? All right. My name's Will Tally. I am the director of bands here at Ohio University. Uh, entering my fifth year of uh, directing bands here. Awesome. Thank you for uh, being able to meet with me today. Absolutely. Okay, so our first question today is, if you had to write a definition of rhythm, what would it be? I would describe rhythm as the intricate movement of, of sound within the meter. And I know the next uh, thing that we want to talk about is what the difference is between the beat and rhythm. And the beat itself, uh, the, the reason that I kind of struggle to answer the question of rhythm is because I think that uh, the, in some cases, the beat needs to be established in order for there to be an understanding of what rhythm is. Now, and I say in some cases because, you know, a bird singing has a rhythm that is not associated with um, with the beat. But for, for us, in most cases, the beat needs to be established, which is that, that underlying um, steady uh, recurring pattern. And the, uh, uh, the beat or meter in our music has a rhythm to it based on what, if, for example, in a 4-4 in a four, four meter, there is a natural repetition of emphasis that goes to beats one and three within that meter. In a, in a three, four meter, we expect for the first beat to have a more uh, an agogic accent that uh, occurs on the, on the first beat of each one of those um, measures. So the rhythm, though, works um, usually within those parameters and it divides those meters up into uh, various durations with, within um, the music that we play. But often in contemporary music, we don't have the, the advantage of having the recurring meter, the, the beat is not always as well defined and sometimes the rhythm is, is separate from that. Interesting. Um, uh, of course, I know you already I touched on it a little bit, um, but the difference between uh, rhythm and beat then, um, would you say is just more, uh, beat is like, the skeleton of rhythm and rhythm kind of shapes around the beat? Yeah, I would say so. Although, you know, as I said, I, I do believe that rhythm can exist um, without that a steady recurring beat. But we tend to respond, most people tend to respond better to rhythm when it occurs within the framework of, of a beat pattern or some type of repetitive beat. Uh, t people tend to get frustrated <laughs> when they can't find the beat in order to, to kind of frame a, a rhythm within. 
cool. Um, so then moving on, I've been reading a book called This Is Your Brain on Music mm-hmm. uh, by Daniel Levitin. Um, and in it, he says that rhythm gives melody drive and structure. And he goes on to elaborate that a little bit more. Um, but I wanted to get your um, take and if you'd be able to expand on the statement and then talk about different rhythms and then the feels that they have, um, if uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it does make sense. And um, rhythm in itself makes certain types of music instantly identifiable. Um, And, you know, obviously, you know, you can think of, you know, music from from various cultures uh, that, you know, I can think of pieces that we performed. We did some a lot of South American music in the last um, few years and their uh, rhythmic patterns associated with various types of music. Um, But even outside of that, when we consider any type of music that we listen to or perform, whether it be pop music, uh, classical music, uh, the rhythm generally does help us define what the phrase structure is of the music, um, if, if that exists, or um, pr- provides us with clarity in terms of what is occurring from a, a, a melodic sense. It's interestingly, at least in my view, um, the the absence, the presence or absence of a recurring beat pattern um, also helps um, us to define what rhythm is. And I always think about the Rite of Spring, the opening Rite of Spring. When the bassoon solo starts at the beginning of the Rite of Spring, you have no idea what the what the meter is, wh- where the beat is. Um, and then even when things, you know, when you have the, those repeated eighth notes, but the accent pattern is uneven. We start to have this kind of recurring beat pattern, but we don't really know what that pattern is, even though the rhythm itself is steady. Uh, and that can be unsettling for people when they listen to music. So generally, most pop music that we listen to does have a recurring beat pattern that's predictable. And then we and then the rhythm generally supports that beat pattern and conforms to what we expect of that. Um, and when it doesn't, then that has a specific effect on people, um, sometimes intended, sometimes unintended. Awesome. And so I wanted, I wondered if we could talk uh, more about melody and beat and how they kind of play into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can have both separately, but I don't know if you had any uh, thoughts on like how how they play into each other. I think you know there are certain composers um, that I think have a gift for writing melodies that are also rhythmically stimulating. One of the first composers that comes to mind for me is Antonin Dvorak. And, uh, you know, pieces like, obviously, the New World Symphony, his most popular symphony, but also overtures like the Carnival Overture. His his gift for um, writing melodies that also have these recognizable rhythmic motives make those makes I think it makes his music um, first of all instantly more recognizable but also uh, 
you know, for lack of a better uh, scientific term, just more catchy. And we find that in, in popular music too. So I do think that melody and rhythm uh, can come together in a way and usually do come together in a way to, to define what music actually really is um, at, at its core. And, and, the, and the music that combines those uh, in, a, in a specific way uh, tends to be the music that we remember and that impact us the most. So I also know there's a lot of different research being done that says when um, a rhythm or like a, uh, a tempo marking lines up closer to like 120 BPM or the um, rhythm closest to like where the human heart rate is, mm-hmm. um, that people connect more to it just because they they feel it more. Do you have any thoughts on that phenomena or are there any like pieces that come to your mind um, that you think of when you think of um, rhythm um, even in the classical world or outside of it. Yeah, I mean, John Philip Sousa. <laughs> I mean, you know, we do the, the summer concert series um, in the summer here in Athens and um, people always respond, whether it's for that reason or not. I mean, it does seem to have, uh, and those marches have an impact uh, and they tend to be about 120 beats per minute. And if you want to get people clapping and moving, then play a Sousa march. And that's, that's what, you know, we experience that each year when, when we do those. And, and not, of course, there are different kinds of marches too. Um, you know, the circus marches, uh, you know, of Carl King and other composers tend to be faster than that, but they also tend to have a different impact. Um, you don't have people respond the same way to those marches um, as they do to, to those marches that are traditional in the traditional tempo of 120 beats per minute. So, I mean, I don't have any scientific evidence to back that up, but it does seem to impact people in a particular way. So in in the same book, uh, This Is Your Brain on Music, uh, he talks about there is a journalist who went to kind of interview a tribe in South Africa. And uh, one of the things, they had a lot of kind of like rituals um, and different things they did that involved singing and dancing. And they asked the journalist, to come and sing with them is um, basically like he'd been with them long enough that they kind of like accepted him and him in. Um, they finally let him sing um, and kind of like dance to the rituals that they sung. And he responded with, I don't sing. And the tribe didn't understand that. They, they responded with, oh, you can talk though. Like it was so like intertwined with just living um, and being a part of the community. Um, and then on top of that, the word for singing was the same word for dancing, huh. um, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Because when you dance, you have to like feel the beat and feel the rhythm and everything. Um, it kind of drives in the point that you can't have singing without rhythm and how um, kind of like all connected that is, which I thought was just really interesting. And um, but I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, that is interesting. It's on, on a couple different levels, right? First of all, we all sing, <laughs> right? Whether we sing well or poorly by, you know, when, when we say we don't sing, usually what we mean is by uh, Western uh, musical standards, our voice would not be considered ideal. <laughs> I mean, by that standard, I don't sing either, but I do sing every day. Um, 
just most, most people probably don't think that it's great singing. Um, but the, you know, the thought of all of those things being connected, uh, our voices as singers, our bodies as dancers, or as producers or reactors to rhythm, those, th those things are all connected. We think about those as uh, musicians a lot, whether we play or conduct or whatever it is that we do. Um, but as just living beings, we are all connected and, you know, and not just human beings either, you know, in, in the animal world and bird song is, you know, is present and around us all the time. There is, however irregular it may be, there is rhythm in that. And in and, and various cultures that sing, you know, there's a, a lot of melismatic singing in other cultures. It would be difficult to notate those rhythms, but they are there. And they do inspire us to move and react when we hear them. And so I do think that all, you know, to, to that, uh, the, the point of that story, that they're all connected in a very special way. Uh, jumping back to earlier, you said you mentioned um, things about contemporary music and how uh, rhythm and all that was more irregular. But what what do you think composers try to um, kind of like capture when they try to imitate like animal sounds? What like I don't know what what kind of like techniques um, do you think they would have to use if they wanted to um, do more of like a primal sounding uh, meter? That's interesting. It, th that's very interesting. And we're about to uh, embark on a concert cycle that features a lot of uh, music that kind of plays around with this idea. You know, and composers have been thinking about this for for a long time. Uh, back, Henry Cowell wrote a book uh, years ago called New Musical Resources. And in that book, he talks about the usage of various uh, different techniques to use sounds as music. And so he talks about using noises like thunder and sliding tones, things that don't have a definite pitch um, to produce sound. But what we see very often, Henry Cowell actually um, suggested a new method of notating rhythms, including uh you know, different types of note values that we don't use, like third notes, which would be a represent, we would represent that as a quarter note triplet, but he would just represent that rhythmic value as a third note. Um, and th those things are, are in that book in New Musical Resources. But what we see most often from composers now is uh, non-metered music in which they don't specify a meter or they um, indicate uh, the passage of time in seconds in their music. We will experience some of that in the music that is coming up. Or they will indicate um, the notes to be played, but not an exact rhythm for those notes to be played in, just that they want these three pitches repeated at random over a certain period of time. And composers are, they're finding, I think, trying to find ways to make rhythm a little bit uh, less regular as they as it is in nature. You know, we um, there aren't a lot of applications that just appear in nature where rhythm is a very steady, you know, um, even the the 
the hours of daylight and, and nighttime vary from day to day. Even that rhythm is irregular over that, over that large span. So we don't expect to see in nature rhythm uh, appear uh, to be so regular. It's, it's humans that produce that kind of regularity of time. And so composers are very interested oftentimes in reproducing the irregularities that exist in nature. I think that's all I had prepared for today. Um, but thank you so much for meeting with me and talking about this. Anytime. Happy uh, to do it. Yeah, thank you. And I hope uh, we can get you back on um, soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks. And that wraps up our guests for this episode. Thank you, Dr. Talley and Professor Fletcher once more. Dr. Talley said some interesting things that I would like to take a moment to unpack and discuss. He mentions how composers like Anton Dvorak have a gift to combine rhythm and melody. He specifically cites New World Symphony and Carnival Overture, both two masterpieces that I recommend you check out, by the way. He mentions them to drive home what I think is a crucial point. Rhythm and melody are cool in their own way, but beautiful together. Additionally, a reason that I decided to put the beat episode before the melody episode, spoiler alert, was because even in extremely melismatic tunes, think of a Muslim call to prayer or Gregorian chant, there is a discernible denomination of time. It may be unnatural or misshapen, but it is there. Me and Dr. Talley also talked about this when he talked about composers writing music to imitate birds or thunder. I hope you enjoyed this episode of MusicCast and will join us next time when we talk to some Athens local bands and more OU faculty about melody. I mentioned it earlier, but I do highly recommend you listen to Dvorak's New World Symphony and Carnival Overture. If not to better understand what I'm talking about, do it to enjoy some genuine art and culture. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed it. Bye.